is this thing on? It's been a minute. Hey, y'all. Um, what up, y'all? So, it's been a minute. <laughs> Let's talk about it. So, all I can say is, like, capitalism had me in the chokehold. <laughs> and I'm going to break that down. So, back when I started, I restarted uh, Queer Walk, I felt this internal pressure to kind of give y'all the same content that me and Nikita used to give y'all. And I can't be Nikita, (laughs) you know? Like, I can't be her. And so I feel like recording just made me, first of all, miss her more. Like, there's this big hole where my best friend used to be. And also had me deeply, like, reconsidering who I am and, like, what my life would be um, now that she's not physically here anymore. That was a hard place to be in every time I sat down to record. So I avoided it. Um, I also, so yeah, um, I also recognized that like I was constantly comparing Queer Walk to other podcasts, other content creators, and just wasn't being fair to myself. So as much as I hate to admit it, I am deeply, deeply perfectionistic. So, (laughs) um, I'm trying not to be, but I have this this core thing that's like, if I'm going to do something, why would I do it half-ass or do it messy? Like, if I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it, like, great, you know? And that puts a lot of pressure on me. And I end up comparing myself very unfairly, like, to people who have teams, <laughs> to podcasts who are sponsored, um... It's, it's just me over here, okay? Um, as much as I would love to have, like, an editor or somebody to help me with social media, I don't. I just am me. I'm a team of one. And, um, yeah, so I've, I started to feel so behind with Queer Walk. Like, I think the last episode I did back in April or May, I tried to do a reel to promote it. And I was like, I don't know how to do fucking reels. Like, <laughs> I I feel like Instagram is on some whole next level stuff that I never signed up for. I I never wanted to have to like promote myself through these algorithms and stuff. And so the learning curve was just like so steep that I got really intimidated and was just like I can't do this. And instead of just like pivoting to what I do know how to do, I just like dropped everything, you know? I I just lost my confidence. I was like, this this podcast has a million plays. This podcast got sponsored by, you know, this this thing. And I'm still over here, you know, like, by myself. No, <laughs> whatever. Um, and it just, like, started to wear on me. Like, the, the feeling like I had, I owed y'all the same content y'all were getting when there was two of us. And comparing Queer Walk to things that it just isn't got to me and it collapsed me and I gave up. But, you know, oh, but community. (laughs) Community would not allow me to leave it for good. Um, I went on a trip with uh, my dear homies in podcasting um, and they like spoke life into me like they always do. They reminded me why I love Queer Walk and also why Queer Walk is a needed space 
in this landscape of podcast and content creation. You know, because there's a lot of, like, womanist or black feminist, uh, like, motifs out there. <laughs> but what black lesbian podcast or content creator y'all know doing it like moi? You know, <laughs> What black lesbian content has moved beyond the like stud versus femme debates, black lesbian content that is also like cons- uh, like trauma sensitive and considerate of mental health, black lesbian content that is not transphobic and fucked up, black lesbian content that isn't hustle or grind culture, you know? So <laughs> I just I'm, like talking to everybody who knows and loves me reminded me that like queer rock does hold a special place both both in my life you know and in the landscape of uh of black feminist media so with that being said <laughs> i turned on the yeti and i was like let's go <laughs> yeah so that's that's me working through <laughs> perfectionism yeah, and we're going to get into this episode. So, let me pause for the intro, and I'm so glad to be back. Hey, y'all. Love your chocolate demeanor and your cocoa kisses. I see your flow from a distance. Your vibe inside my submission. I give you all of me. Want to make you proud of me. We see the God in all you do. Your light is harmony. Every type of darkest night, brightest light, I'm loving your soul They hate you, replace you, taint you, but know that you go Worldwide from every continent, I just want you to jig a little bit Move them hips, feel that bliss, hug your sister, make a fist Don't resist your temptation, you amazing, no limitation My favorite in this matrix, we move by your vibration And that's love, I hope you hear that on the daily Cause baby you love, I hope you hear that on the daily Cause baby you love I hope you hear that on the daily, cause baby, you love, you love. All right, y'all. So for those of y'all who are new here, this is Queer Rock the Podcast, the sapphic speakeasy. That's that's the new moniker, you know, the sapphic speakeasy. <laughs> um, and you can find me on all things at Queer Rock Pod. That's P-O-D. Um, I'm not on Facebook but there is a Facebook page for the podcast if you want to go over there and like it. Um, I do be on Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, all the things. You can also listen to the podcast on any platform that you like to stream podcasts, whether that's Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, all the places. Google Podcasts. I know, you know, Google Podcasts is fighting for its life, but we on there. <laughs> Ways you can help me sustain Queer Walk. Uh, like I said, I am a team of one. Uh, and your support goes a long way. So uh, the first way, obviously, is by loving the podcast out loud. You can rate us on all the things. Uh, review, request a topic, or a Queer Walk of the Week. Um, repost the episodes and you see me posting. Uh, retweet and reply. I am responding now. (laughs) Um, I know I was gone, but I'm responding now. So uh, hit me up at QueerWalkPod at gmail.com or just hit the DMs on Instagram or Twitter and I'll get back to you. 
The second way you can support Queer Walk is monetarily by becoming a sustainer over on the Patreon. So if you want to continue to get the episodes unedited and live on Sundays, um, head over to the Patreon and become a patron. It is patreon.com slash queerwalkpod, P-O-D. I have some suggested tiers for how much you can contribute uh, a month. It's a monthly donation, but you can contribute as much or as little as your pockets will allow. Um, or if you don't want to contribute, you don't want Google having your <laughs> your card information, you can um, send a one-time donation via Cash App at dollar sign Queer Walk Pod, P-O-O-D. So. Okay, so I'm going to move us on along to the Queer Walk, Queer Walk, Queer Walk of the Week. And the Queer Walk of the Week um, slash Queer Pock of the Week segment is just where I highlight some queer woman of color, queer person of color who's done dope shit, is doing dope shit, is doing things that I think y'all should know about, um, or is otherwise incredible or remarkable. Just giving folks their flowers, right? And this week is no different. So the Queer Rock of the Week this week is former WNBA player and indigenous icon, Renel D. Vicente. <laughs> so I'm going to tell y'all a little bit about Renel D. So first of all, I found out about Renel D. because of a, um, a TikTok by Overtime Women's Basketball. And I'll put the link in the um, description of the episode to the TikTok of this person who went to the NCAA um, championship game, UConn versus South Carolina, where obviously South Carolina and the Gamecocks and Dawn Staley won. um, Because they know I love women's basketball. You know, I'm rocking my WNBA hoodie today um, in honor of Rinaldi. (laughs) And Rinaldi was at the game. And actually, uh, Dawn Staley gave them Gave her her t-shirt, right? And her championship t-shirt, signed it and everything. And so this person who did the TikTok was like, who is this? Like, who is this person that Dawn Staley is giving her championship t-shirt to? And so the person who was recording the TikTok went over. Rinaldi is like, oh, I played against Dawn. I'm Rinaldi Vicente. And, you know, (laughs) um, standing ensued. (laughs) Uh. Renelde was born to Navajo parents in Fort Defiance, Arizona, and she started playing basketball at the age of five. And in eighth grade, her team, her middle school team, won the Arizona State National Basketball Championship. And protesters uh, actually, like, demanded that they forfeit the championship. And they were, like, uh, questioning uh, Renelde's gender, saying that she was a boy playing for the girls' team, and that's why they won. And these, you know, uh, queerphobic, homophobic, transphobic, all the thing, protesters are questioning her gender, right? Um, I saw different stats, so I don't know which one is accurate, but Rinaldi dropped more than 30 points in that game as an eighth grader. <laughs> so um, people were just like, there's no way um, that a girl could do this. I saw some sources say that she dropped 50 on them. I mean, you know, Lisa Leslie historically dropped 100 in a in a basketball game in high school. So it's possible. And y'all got your ass whooped <laughs> by this little girl. So um, just eat it. So obviously they kept their championship. Um, but Renelde said that she almost quit that day. But her father encouraged her. Her father told her that Navajo women have always been strong. 
that we we ain't never let <laughs> Nana stop us. <laughs> um, and her father also reminded her of all the time she had spent getting good at dribbling and like her handles because she's a point guard. And so that day she almost quit, but her daddy reminded her Navajo women do this, and she stuck with it. And so thankful she did. Um, So she went on to play basketball at Scottsdale Community College in Arizona. And for the 1990 season, she was ranked the country's number one college point guard. (laughs) Period. She was a two-time NJCAA, which is the NCAA for uh, community colleges, All-American and two-time All-American honorable mention. So was just getting accolades after accolades for basketball at her junior college. And uh, then she went on to play at Arizona State, where she made the NCAA All-Pac-10 first team both years she played at Arizona State. So this means (laughs) that out of all the Pac-10 universities, all the Pac-10 schools, she made the first team. So I don't know if y'all... How familiar y'all are with basketball? But that's five people on the first team. And out of all the Pac-10 schools, she made that first team both years. Um, She also played in the 1993 World University Games. This is, y'all, this is pre-WNBA, right? This is like women's basketball as a professional league in America was trying to come about for them. Um, And she's just like killing it, (laughs) killing the game. Um, So she played in the World University Games, and her team won bronze. Uh, So she got a medal. And in 1994, she played professional basketball in Sweden, like so many uh, women who play basketball have to do in America because there's only 144 slots in the W. And that's currently. In 1994, there was no WNBA. So she went abroad to play um, in Sweden. She also has played in Greece and in Turkey. And then in 1997, she signed with the Phoenix Mercury. (laughs) We love the Mercury over here on Queer Walk. Uh, It's still free Brittany Griner. Nobody should be in prison for weed. Um, uh, Yeah, so she signed for the inaugural season of the WNBA. So the very first season of the WNBA um, Rinaldi signs with the Phoenix Mercury and debuts for them and uh, went on to play that first season with the Phoenix Mercury. And then after that, this is for old, old heads. Y'all might remember there was this thing called the American Basketball League before the WNBA um, in 1997. Uh, and so after she played with the Mercury in the inaugural season of the W, she went on to play for Chicago in the American Basketball League. Okay, so in 1996, um, Rinaldi became the first and only female basketball player to be inducted into the American Indian Athletic Hall of Fame. And in 2013, she was the first women's basketball player to have her jersey retired by Arizona State University. Like I said, indigenous icon. (laughs) And last year, uh, Rinaldi was a WNBA Believe in Women honoree for the 25th season of the league, being the first indigenous um, woman to play in the WNBA. Um, So, and to do it in your home state. That's just so dope. That's just so dope. So, I'll put the link to the TikTok 
in the description of this episode. Uh, but shout out to Renelde Vicente for being an indigenous icon and also for being living queer walk history, right? Like, what is she? She was born in the 70s, so is she like 50? You know, <laughs> like this is not long ago history. So shout out to Renelde Vicente. It's time for that black feminist healing. This, that, real shit, not make believe. Come on, money, please help me get my shit together. I listen to the moment when times get rough. Put all my headphones, turn it all the way up. Who's gonna give you grounding tips? There's nobody better. Oh, money, help me get my shit together. (laughs) (laughs) I'm gonna move it on along to the mental moment with money. All right, so this mental moment, also inspired by TikTok. I should have said, I you know, I said capitalism had me in a chokehold, but I guess TikTok has had me in a chokehold. Yeah, so for folks who might not know, this is the segment of the podcast where I talk about some mental health tips, tricks, um, hacks, uh, hopefully give some guidance to just make our mental wellness a little bit better, you know? Um, I am a trained and licensed (laughs) marriage and family therapist. (laughs) Uh, So I saw this thing going viral about uh, this research study that came out that said depression had nothing to do with serotonin. I saw so many TikToks on Twitter sharing that like serotonin has nothing to do with depression. Blah, 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 blah. It's all a lie. Depression isn't real. And I'm just like, hold on. (laughs) So the one good thing that grad school, uh, uh, like, equipped me to do is, like, read research articles. Because research is not written for, like, us to understand it. It's, like, (laughs) very fucked up the way um, peer-reviewed studies and stuff are written. It's, like, written for this niche of niche of niche uh, (laughs) of a field And everybody else is kind of just left to look at the, like, summary of the research and try to make sense of it. So I wanted to explain this research article and what it did and what it actually found. And then I just wanted to talk through some of my thoughts on depression. That's okay? All right. So does depression really have nothing to do with serotonin levels? After a review of research on depression published uh, this summer, in July, I think, in the Journal of Molecular Psychology, um, researchers led by Joanna Moncrief concluded that there's no clear evidence that serotonin levels or serotonin activity causes depression. Since most people believe that depression is caused by a chemical imbalance, like that chemical imbalance narrative of depression has been like, like the dominant narrative of what what causes depression since like the early 90s. And so since most people believe this and because the only medical way to treat depression is through SSRIs, um this 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 study like shook the shook the uh, table, right? <laughs> so um so SSRIs make up like 90% of antidepressants. And so SSRIs are selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. And so what what these antidepressants do is they work by 
um, stopping serotonin that we produce from being absorbed. So the idea was more free serotonin, higher serotonin levels, less, um, less depression, less depressive symptoms. Currently, there's no other way to uh, pharmacologically, you know, like with a pill, um, treat depression. Like SSRIs are like that girl. Um, so this, this research study finding that serotonin levels didn't really have anything to do (laughs) with depression, it, it was like, what the hell is happening? So I want to like really get into what the research study actually did and how they came to this conclusion, right? So this study was not a clinical study. It was a, um, review of literature. Any of y'all who have ever been in a research class, you know, when you have to do a review of literature, like look at the past 10, um, or 20 years and see what's been studied in this area. That's what this research study did. Um, they actually did an exhaustive lit review. So from the beginning of depression research, um, they looked at research, clinical research on depression from like the 1980s until current day and found no significant evidence for lower serotonin levels equaling depression. Or, and I, I should specifically say low serotonin levels were not found to be linked to a depression diagnosis. So the way they were like, do you have depression or not in this study was if somebody had been diagnosed. I think that's really important Um, because there's lots of folks who would meet the criteria of depression but haven't been diagnosed because they aren't in therapy, have never been inpatient treatment or anything for mental health. This study also compared blood levels of folks in these research studies that they reviewed diagnosed with depression to folks not diagnosed with depression and found no significant difference in serotonin levels. So they looked at the research on the serotonin levels of people who were diagnosed with depression and the healthy like comparison group and found no difference in serotonin levels. And the last thing that this research study did So they artificially lowered uh, serotonin levels. So they say artificially because they didn't like introduce (laughs) anti-serotonin into people. What they did is they took people who were healthy, which they defined as not having any mental health diagnoses, and changed their diet to eliminate foods that increase serotonin production. So this is um, like nuts, seeds, Uh, fish like salmon, um, eggs, you know, a lot of like good proteins, avocados and stuff. They produce the amino acids that, that helped us boost serotonin. Serotonin is not just created in our brain. It's also created in our gut. So what they did was they eliminated all those foods from people's diet so that they weren't, um, producing this serotonin. So significantly lowering serotonin levels in healthy people. And they found no significant number of them reported symptoms of depression. So it's like we eliminated all the stuff from their diet that lowered uh, serotonin levels and they still are not reporting depression. A small group of these people, about 75, according to the article, and of course the article is linked, (laughs) about 75 of these participants out of like thousands uh, reported that they did experience uh, 
symptoms of depression. But all of those 75 people had immediate family members who had a history of depression. Do, do, do. <laughs> so that's what this research article that kind of went viral on TikTok with none of this context um, found, right? And so my understanding of reading through these three things that this uh, research project did is that these findings just tell us that we have no idea why or how antidepressants work. <laughs> like that That's really the takeaway. Like if the only medical model that we have to treat depression actually has no impact, then what the fuck are we prescribing so many SSRIs for? That is what I feel like the takeaway should have been of this research study. But I think what it became is like, depression isn't real, like, um, mental health is a lie. And, and I'm like, okay, I have some thoughts here. I have some thoughts. So first of all, some of that is kind of true, right? Um, diagnosis and treatment is not a science. It's a, a skill. It's a skill you can practice and get better at, but it's really an art. You know, diagnosis takes, um, self-report of like folks being aware of their symptoms and being able to name it in a way that the person listening can understand. Um, therapists be biased as fuck, right? So like, you know, therapist biases and what we assume about certain communities and who's experiencing what plays into diagnoses. And this is all before we even start talking about like big pharma being in cahoots with the American Psychological Association. See, this is why I don't have sponsors. <laughs> this is why I don't. It's like, you know, like big, big, there's, ah, oh, I'm going to find the podcast episode and put it in um, the description of this. But there's, there's this dude who got his PhD and I think clinical psychology and afterwards, his all his work has been about how, like, the American Psychological Association and the DSM is really, like, profiting off of our suffering and really not, like, helping us the way we think it should. Um, but in one of his podcast episodes, he was interviewing this person who said that um, we can actually trace, <laughs> like, people being diagnosed with depression with, like, big pharma companies partnering with the American Psychological Association, right? So, I mean, I've worked clinical agency before. I've had supervisors tell me, just put this as the diagnosis because of billing purposes, because we get reimbursed more if you do this, or because we can prescribe for that. We can't pres prescribe for this other thing, right? So, diagnosis is faulty as fuck. <laughs> so, um, that's my first thought, you know? So, it's like... I think it might be more helpful to talk about the function of depression in your life. I would say that as a narrative therapist, um, than it is to talk about diagnosis as like a cut and dry, you have depression or you don't. Um, I also think, and this kind of relates to misinformation on TikTok too, that like people have taken diagnoses up and they're not diagnosed with it by any like, you know, provider or whatever. And I want to, I just want us to explore that more. Like, folks who are like, oh, I have this, I have that, you know? It's like, okay, it, what it sounds like to me is that people are just finding new language to describe their experiences of something 
not necessarily that they are, their lives are disrupted so much to the point where it feels like dysfunction. Does that make sense? So specific to depression, I think a lot of people will say that they are depressed, are in a depressive episode just because they sad (laughs) when like, um, to like meet the criteria for diagnosis of depression, you have to be sad uninterruptedly. So for a prolonged period of time, I think the, the DSM loves, uh, two weeks for stuff or like three months for stuff. And you cannot also have like elevated episodes like mania, right? So depression is only, we talking about monopolar, like unipolar depression. So it's just like a series of downs. (laughs) Um, And so, yeah, it just had me thinking about that. Like how many folks are reporting to have depression versus like what feels like a dysfunction. Like I can't function because this is impacting my life so much. I think those things are different and they just end up all getting clumped under depression. Um, yeah. So other thoughts I have, (laughs) uh, other radical thoughts. So one in five women and one in 10 men will have a depressive episode by the age of 40. And it's estimated that one in six adults are prescribed antidepressants in the United States. This is also from that research study. If one in five, and and I am, of course, because research is flawed, I'm just going to guess that these are like norm referenced on able-bodied folks, um, pretty wealthy folks who can at least afford mental health services um, probably white folks, you know, (laughs) so I'm like, if one in five women, women, and one in 10 men will have a depressive episode by the age of 40, what this tells me is that depression is a rational response to the way we're forced to survive. (laughs) Like, why do we have to live like this, where one in five of us will, one in five women will be collapsed by a depressive episode, and one in six adults will have to be on antidepressants at some point in some point in their life. That that just if this tells me that something in the environment is massively impacting the people. That, that that's just my thought. I also think the chemical imbalance explanation of depression has always been um an oversimplification. I think the idea that any mental health, whatever, is simply rooted in a person, I don't fuck with at all. (laughs) Like, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't. And it doesn't account for at all. If if 20% of us are experiencing this thing, it ain't just my my chemicals in my body, okay? (laughs) Like, if, if, like, if... I can go one, two, three, four and get to the fifth person and, and they have, and every fifth person person is impacted by depression. It ain't, it ain't just my chemicals. (laughs) So, um, I just think that the whole chemical imbalance thing for whether it be uh, bipolar depression or unipolar depression has, was always an oversimplification. And, um, if I'm being real, it was, it's a white supremacist oversimplification because it's not addressing the things in society that folks might be reacting to 
where they have a prolonged experience of sadness. And the other thing I wanted to say about the chemical imbalance thing, so this study only looked at serotonin. If y'all remember episode 108 of (laughs) Queer Walk the Podcast, I talked about at least three other neurotransmitters that um, impact our mood. And that's just the ones I know. I'm not a, a neuropsychologist. I'm not a brain therapist. <laughs> I'm a talk therapist, right? So these are just the ones I know with my basic understanding of um, neuropsychology. Dopamine, oxytocin, um, serotonin, and endorphins, right? So like, I'm like, if I know of at least three others that impact our mood, I'm sure there are a whole bunch more. Um So I say all that to say there's been no exploration into dopamine levels impacting depression. Um, There's been no exploration into oxytocin impacting depression or um, like endorphins, you know. So it's like maybe SSRIs ain't the answer. But what if uh, other RIs (laughs) are the answer? Like a dopamine medication or oxytocin medication might... um, might be a better solution for uh, uh, depression. My last thing about this research study is um, depression is equally as social and somatic as it is uh, brain. Um, I say this so much in the mental moment segment, but studies continue to show, especially for queer people, that social connectedness, Um, lower experiences with bodily trauma, so like um, sexual harm or physical harm, and having a movement practice, whatever that looks like for you, improve or prevent our experiences of depression, right? So I I think going back to uh, it being an oversimplification that it's just a chemical imbalance, there's just a lot of other things that go into whether or not we experience depression, including moving our bodies. <laughs> um, or do we feel supported and connected? Do we feel loved? Have we experienced, um, you know, adverse life experiences? All those things matter when we talk about depression. So, yeah, in conclusion <laughs> to this mental moment, medicine never have and never will be the solution for depression. Um, I think we need mass mass social change uh, to be a solution for depression. And I think we also need uh, ways to experience life in a more connected way. Um, whether that's more space for community, more love, you know, more not having to do everything for yourself. Like, you know, what if you only had to cook for yourself on Wednesdays? And all the rest of the days of the week, (laughs) you could just go somewhere and get some food uh, free of charge. You know, like these these ways that we take for granted that life has to be. I think if those transformed, we just wouldn't see the same level of depression. I feel like every year we see a two percent increase in even kids being um, prescribed SSRIs. And so we need another way. Okay. I'm going to move it on along to the topic segment. (laughs) And the topic segment is really like the queer potpourri segment. It's where I talk about anything that doesn't fit into the other segments. And I know this is old 
in social media time, but I'm still tight. I'm, I'm still mad about it. Capitalism had me in the chokehold. <laughs> so I really wanted to talk about this. The thing that still has me upset is uh, Jay-Z and his Twitter space comments. <laughs> oh, so, okay. Um, so let's talk about uh, Jay-Z and capitalism. So Jay-Z hopped his happy ass onto uh, Twitter spaces um, a few weeks ago. I didn't write the date, but uh, I think a lot of people heard about it. Um, and what he said was in response to, I think it was DJ Khaled asking him a question uh, about being a success in hip hop or whatever. And he said, quote, we not going to stop. Uh, hip hop is young. It's still growing. We not falling for the trick, trick knowledge the public puts out there now. <laughs> Before it was the American dream. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You can make it in America. All these lies that America told us uh, our whole lives. And then we went to start getting it and they try to lock us out of it. He continues, they start inventing words like capitalists. We've been called N-words and monkeys and shit. I don't care what words y'all come up with. Y'all got to come with stronger. Uh, he said, nobody should feel ashamed to be successful in a place that set up a system for us to be dead at 21. Y'all locked us out. Y'all created a system that, you know, doesn't include us. We said, fine, we went our alternate route. We created this music shit. We did our own thing, you know? We hustled, we killed ourselves to get to this space. And you know, now it's like, you know, eat the rich. And man, we not stopping. So much is happening in that quote. Um, and he went on to talk about, you know, how he, you know, him and his entire family lived in a house in Marcy Projects. Um, so the reason why I wanted to talk about this, I know a lot of people have said stuff, but I think I have reactions that I haven't seen anybody else say, um, yet. The primary reason why I wanted to talk about this is that, uh, this is dangerous. Like, <laughs> I don't want to go as far as Bell Hooks, you know, who called his wife a terrorist, but, <laughs> but like, when most people are getting their political education from um, social media or music, um, I think it's really dangerous for, like, Jay-Z to be equating these audiences that actually aren't the same groups of people and to be, like, positioning capitalists as, like, an aspirational thing to be. So... Um, Wine and Chill on YouTube did an amazing breakdown of this. Uh, I think her name is Stephanie. She's uh, a lawyer. She used to be an entertainment lawyer. And she did an amazing breakdown of this. But I'm just going to give, like, my, like, one word <laughs> definition of a capitalist. So a capitalist is someone who wants to own the means of production or to own other people's labor in order to benefit themselves in order to earn wealth and amass wealth and hoard wealth for themselves, right? So capitalism should never, never be positioned as the goal. Um, so Jay-Z said a lot in that quote, but I just want to hit on some things that, that really still has me upset. So the first thing, 
uh, he recognizes the lies of like American capitalism, right? He's talking about this bootstrap thing and it not including us. Capitalism did include us. And who is the us? Black people. Um, I think he's more specifically talking about black men, but capitalism always in- included black people as exploited labor. <laughs> capitalism from its very start in this country included black people as slaves to freedom. No. <laughs> Let me stop. But <laughs> yeah, it, it quite literally depended on us not being paid for our work for us not having a say in government, capitalism has always included back black people in this country. Um, therefore, black people have always resisted capitalism in this country. So capitalism relied on us to be slaves in the beginning. Then it relied on us to be severely underpaid. Then it relied on us to be a surplus prison labor <laughs> um, uh, source. And now... capitalism relies on black people to be the perpetual working class um that we don't own anything (laughs) that we will always be be renting working um borrowing having to give our money externally and not not to our own so yeah so that like capitalism never included us we we were never the capitalists i think that has changed (laughs) but it always included us The next thing I wanted to say, Jay-Z totally uh, conflated audiences and what he said. And it's so annoying. And I see this happening all the time on Twitter, too. The white people who call you racist slurs are not the black folks who are calling you a capitalist. The, The black folks who are, you know, celebrating you as the first hip hop billionaire are not the black folks who are saying eat the rich. <laughs> you know, like the demands and the asks of these groups are different. When black people say eat the rich, defund the police, all the uh, Black Lives Matter, all the rallying calls that we've had in the past five years, we're upset with rich people like you, Jay-Z, for exploiting us to make your billion, right? And using black revolutionaries as like the little sprinkle on your like culture Sunday, you know, it's like, whoo, how far do I want to get into this? <laughs> um, okay. So he used a lot of like joining language, right? Like we, us, we, us. Um, who is we? <laughs> because you, you speak French now, niggas in Paris. It's like, who, who is we? Because, um, like I said, these are separate audiences, right? So like the people using using racial slurs and also having the power to deny you access to places, Jay-Z, are not the same people <laughs> who are calling you a capitalist. It's, they're just not. White people aren't mad that you're a capitalist. Like maybe, maybe some like, you know, revolutionary white people, but like the white people that he's talking about, the white people who are cutting checks, white billionaires, they're not mad that you're a capitalist. And also, when I think about him saying we, in America, I looked <laughs> I looked this up after um, Wine and Chill put it in her video. In America, there are 42 million black people. There are seven black billionaires. 
in America. And if you try really hard right now, you could probably name all seven of them. <laughs> Him being one, right? So who is we? Black people don't have money. Our our wealth has been denied and stolen from us for so long. Like, what are you talking about we? What are you talking about we? Uh, <laughs> oh, that that really annoyed me. I was like, there's, it's not even a, a fraction. It's not even 1% of black people who are billionaires. It's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> uh, so when we say eat the rich, we, that is a, a commentary. What is it? I think like half of black households in America make $50,000 or less a year. So, so we talking about 21 million black people, Jay-Z? Like, come on. So <laughs> 12,500 people making 80K a year equals what a billionaire makes in a year. Who is we? <laughs> and I'm in 80K. I don't. I might know somebody making 80K who who made 80K once. You know, like, oh, they had a popping year. Most people are not making 80K. Most black people are not making 80K. I think me, okay, primarily my uh, frustration around this is like, this is what, because he uses this veneer of like revolutionaries, this is what gets positioned as, uh, as like, Black commentary, black political commentary, right? And it's not. First of all, nobody came up with capitalists just for you, Jay-Z. No, like, <laughs> that erases that erases so many um, generations of, like, black revolutionaries who have been anti-capitalists. And I'm just going to give a few examples of people that he's compared himself to. So he has this line on the uh, Watch the Throne album... Uh, where he says, I arrived on the day Fred Hampton died. Uh. <laughs> uh, real niggas just multiply. So I think the best person to listen to about a critique of that uh, would be Fred Hampton Jr., Fred Hampton's son, who called him Slave Z after this. <laughs> and um, and he said that this is dangerous because it's, it's, uh, it's revisionist history, right? Fred Hampton did not die. He was assassinated by the FBI because he was an anti-capitalist. <laughs> so, um, so when Jay-Z is positioning what success looks like as being a, a real nigga, like, and, and that being equated to being a capitalist, that is actually counter. It, like, Fred Hampton said he would grab a, a black capitalist by his collar and beat him over the head with a Black Panther newspaper. Fred Hampton said, we don't fight racism with racism. We fight racism with solidarity. We don't fight capitalism with capitalism. We fight capitalism with socialism. How dare you compare you stealing wealth to Fred Hampton? It just, yeah, so... I think, again, why I wanted to talk about this is, like, it's so dangerous because so many people get their political education from music or, like, social media, pop culture. 
Another person Jay-Z has compared himself to is Malcolm X. Malcolm X said, show me a capitalist and I'll show you a bloodsucker. Y'all, <laughs> I'm not I'm not making this stuff up. <laughs> Our people have said it, you know? Um, Jay-Z has compared himself to MLK. He said he was good on any MLK Boulevard. Are you? Most folks who live on MLK Boulevards are living paycheck to paycheck. Have, do y'all know any MLK Boulevards? They be in the hood, right? MLK was also a democratic socialist uh, who was assassinated while helping sanitation workers organize and unionize and form a union, right? So um, direct response to capitalism. I don't know if MLK would be cool with you being on his boulevards, Jay-Z. Um, and the last thing I'm going to say about this... <laughs> I really wanted to go off harder because um, he thought he was killing that shit. And I'm telling Hove, go harder. Charity, because I think he uh, really positions himself in this vein. Charity is not anti-capitalism. Charity is not redistribution of wealth. All the things he does for Marcy Projects, he gets to decide who gets it. That's not redistribution of wealth if you're a gatekeeper of who gets it. Um, he also gets to decide what they get. That's not redistribution of wealth. If you saying, you know what? I know you could use another stimulus check, but I'm gonna give you a Bitcoin, um, seminar instead. (laughs) What the fuck? (laughs) Um, charity also keeps the workers working and the owners owning, right? It doesn't, it doesn't level out that hierarchy and it doesn't change that, um, that, difference in power at all uh also charity barely impacts uh billionaires and millionaires wealth right so i think this came out about like mark zuckerberg but like what he has contributed to charity makes up less than one percent of his income right so you don't even notice you don't even notice the money that you're contributing so i don't want to hear this like oh we can't we can't call him a capitalist because he be giving back why is he the first person to see a big a bee out them housing buildings? That's what he said, right? Why is Jay-Z the first billionaire out of Marcy and probably the only since him in 2019 if he was actually really doing something? <laughs> you know? Why is that the case? Why have there only been two other people who he's worked with that have become billionaires? Y'all know how many people Rockefeller records, you know, it's like, it's because it's, it's actually impossible for all of us to become billionaires. <laughs> billionaires hoard the wealth of the people. So it, it just, it's not, that's, it's not giving success in the way he thinks is giving success. So <sighs> I think, that <laughs> I think that was all I wanted to say about that, but I, I just had really big feelings about it when I heard I was so angry I immediately started writing (laughs) so yeah y'all tell me what y'all think about black capitalists I'm totally over them (laughs) Uh, they gotta get out of here and I think more importantly I want to know what artists are making the revolution sexy which ones are making the revolution irresistible for the now? Um, 
who aren't talking about this, like, you know, generational wealth and um, my baby's on the Forbes list and stuff as success. Because generational wealth, we were the generational wealth. Black people, we, we would get passed down from white person to white person as property. <laughs> you know, it's like the, there is no way that system is going to free us ever. Okay, that's it. <laughs> Thank y'all for coming to my TED Talk. <laughs> so I'm moving on along to Curved Chronicles. Curved Chronicles is the segment where I talk about my dating woes and wins and or y'all's dating woes and wins. You can send me your dating stories at QueerWalkPod at gmail.com or just send them to me in the DMs, you know, at QueerWalkPod on everything. Um, I don't have any major uh, ones, but I have a little quick one that I wanted to share um, since the last episode. Um, so <laughs> I was at home, you know, minding my business and my Amazon day delivery shows up <laughs> and uh, the Amazon driver. So I was like, I think I was in between sessions. Was I? Yeah, I think I was in between sessions and I had like, um, a grocery delivery. And so the guy is like delivering my stuff. And then he like goes back to the truck and brings more stuff. Cause you know, I got all my groceries and then, um, uh, and then he comes back like hands empty. So I'm like, what's going on? And he goes, Oh, I'm so sorry. I hope this is not uh, too much, but can I ask you for your number? And usually I would not say this y'all, but I think I was just like, caught off guard and I was moving real fast and I was just like I'm gay I'm sorry I'm sorry I'm gay I usually don't say that because um historically men don't respond well to like queerness right like they'll um they'll either like you know go into hypersexuality mode and be like oh I'm I'm a lesbian too (laughs) and do that or they get violent. And so I usually don't say that. But for whatever reason, that's what I said this day. And he responded, oh, okay, okay. Do you mean gay like you only date women or gay like you date everybody? <laughs> I don't know why I thought that was so funny. I think in thinking about language and um, how we come to know what terms mean and, like, how we actually use terms. Um, I've said on here before that I grew up using gay as an umbrella term. So I think the same way queer gets used now is the way I would use gay growing up because that's the language I had access to. Um, And it just reminded me of all of that, right? (laughs) I was just like, wow, like, that's a good question, actually. (laughs) Am I gay as in... um, monosexual like attracted to one gender or gay as in uh attracted to multiple genders (laughs) so I like laughed when he said that and I was like no I'm sorry I don't date men um he was like oh all right then well you have a great day and I was like you too you too um but stay stay with the respectable approach stay with that (laughs) um uh this ain't the audience but (laughs) I think somebody else would really appreciate that. Um, and I know delivery people, I ain't never seen a, a non-attractive delivery person, okay? <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm like, delivery people, 
hmm, you can get it. Um, yeah, so I'm sure if he, you know, used that approach on someone who does date men, he might get a different response. But I just thought that was so funny. He was like, gay as in you date women or gay as in you date everybody. Um, yeah. So <laughs> have y'all had any kind of like run-ins around language when it comes to dating or a curved chronicle? Let me know. Hit me up and tell me. I want to hear about it. <laughs> um, I think language outpaces um, our actual experiences, right? Like there's, there's new language all the time. Um, who was it? I think, uh, Patricia Hill Collins who talked about the, uh, linguistic treadmill. It's like, we'll come up with a word for our experience. It will get co-opted. So we have to come up with another word. (laughs) Um, so language is always outpacing our experiences. So I'm really curious if anybody else has had (laughs) a linguistic curve chronicle. (laughs) Hit me up. Let me know. All right, y'all. I think that was a return to the mic. Um, (laughs) This episode of Queer Walk the Podcast was made possible thanks to the monetary contributions of Lauren, Jessica, and my name is Orion, who all became new patrons. Thank y'all so much. This episode was also made possible by the listeners of Aubrey, Texas. Rancho Cordova, California, and Bengaluru, India. 